I know that I'm at risk of losing a lot of interest from you here, right at the start, but I'm a huge professional cycling fan. It is true. I'll load up uh, Dutch sports streams on the internet to watch cobbled classics in the spring. I'll spend the whole day with the live text running in the background on my computer during the Giro d'Italia. Every year, while the BBC bombards us with Wimbledon, for me, <laughs> controversial, for me, July is Tour de France month, with three weeks of daily extended highlights to enjoy. Oh, as riders climb through some of the highest... <laughs> hmm? Yeah, thank you, I need it. <laughs> the riders climb through the highest mountains in the Alps and the Pyrenees, they hammer past the sunflower fields in Normandy and Brittany. I think when you really understand something, you can truly appreciate it. Whether it's cycling, or American football, or wine, or classical music, or death metal music, or art, or poetry, or maybe even, with a lot of effort, Formula One. <laughs> of course I understand why some might not get too excited about a six-hour day of racing when not much happens for five and a half hours. But then I can't listen to Classic FM good work, um, for long without getting extremely bored. My favourite cyclist until his retirement a couple of years ago was a rider called David Miller. Some of you may have heard of him, most of you probably haven't. Uh, for much of his career, he worked as a domestique or a, a team helper, like a, a support guy. Um, and he became known as what was called a team captain as he got older, because he was so smart with his cycling knowledge. He was great at reading how a race was unfolding. He was a very strong time trialist, doing well in races where riders rode against the clock rather than against each other. He was good, very good, but not great at pretty much everything. He could ride on cobbles. He could ride well on the flat, on hills, okay, in the mountains. He could descend well. He could tell when to get into a breakaway. He could sprint well, if he was in the breakaway. His French was excellent, which is quite a big thing in cycling. He was cultured, respected, well-liked. He was what they called the voice of the peloton. I remember when he won a stage of the Tour de France a few years ago, and I was literally jumping up and down, shouting at the TV in excitement, because he worked so hard all three weeks to get to that point. Cyclist achievements are known as their, and my pronunciation is horrible, palmeras, palmeras, palmeras. Um, please allow me to quickly read off a few of David Miller's. He won four stages of the Tour de France, five of the Volta d'Espagne, one of the Giro d'Italia. He was the British road and time, time trial champion in 2007. He's the only British rider to have worn all the Tour de France jerseys, yellow, polka dot and so on and was the first of only three British riders in history to have worn the leader's jersey in the three biggest races, the Tour, the Giro and the Volta. He won two silver medals at the World Championships for time trial, has a gold in the 2010 Commonwealth Games for time trial and a bronze in the road race. He won the three days of Japan in 2010, <coughs> the Chrono de Nations in 2010 and a load of other stages, top tens, smaller race, race victories and so on. He's done a lot in his career. And in 2003, he won the time trial at the World Championship, the pinnacle of the sport. Except, all the official records say he didn't. Because, 
He admitted taking banned performance-enhancing drugs in 2004 and was banned for two years. His World Championship goal was stripped from him and his reputation and career lay in tatters. David Miller was seen as the next big thing, legitimately at the time seen as possible contender for the biggest races, as someone who could compete against Lance Armstrong, as a Brit who the French fans actually loved, which was very rare at the time. They loved seeing him ride with great panache and style. He was riding for a French team, seen as their leader, feeling that pressure to perform and succeed. In his book, he speaks candidly about being worn down by that pressure, admitting that although drugs were all around him, it was his choice, ultimately, to take them, to give himself a better chance of winning. David Miller was a rising star, a hot young talent. Then he messed up big time. He served his time, returned apologetic, unlike most dopers in the sport. He was outspoken and determined to put things right. From 2006 to 2014, he won back the respect, support and belief of many he had let down. Today's conversation with Jesus is not with David Miller, but with another man who was tipped for the top. He hit rock bottom, he found his redemption and forgiveness, a man with an even more impressive palmeris. It's a man who's one of the twelve disciples, usually listed first when they're mentioned. Along with James and John, he was present at incidents when the others weren't mentioned. He professed his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Along with his brother Andrew, Jesus called him to be a fisher of men. It's his boat that Jesus preaches from on the shore of Lake Genesaret. It's him who gets out of the boat when Jesus calls him whilst walking on the water. He's the one who tells Jesus to wash not only his feet, but also his hands and everything when Jesus tells him if he doesn't allow him to wash his feet, he'll have no part of him. He's the man who sets forward to defend Jesus when he's arrested on the Mount of Olives, cutting off the ear of one of the students. Students? Uh, I'm thinking of work here. I'll just, this, that's a bit of a forage. It's, oh. <laughs> it's been a hard week. He's the next big thing. He's the one who truly sees Jesus for what he is. He's saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In Matthew 16, 16, Peter was the strong, unmoving rock. And yet, after a few short hours on the Mount of Olives, before dawn had even broken, Peter denied, know, denied knowing Jesus three times. Just as Jesus had said he would do. Something that Peter vehemently denied he would. He denied knowing Jesus, not to Pilate or to powerful military leaders, but to servants. Through fear, worry, self-preservation, Peter denies knowing or following his Lord. Luke 22, 61-62 says, The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I can't even comprehend how Peter was feeling. He had gone from being Jesus' staunchest defenders, one of his closest disciples, a man ready to take on the world for Jesus, and had seemingly thrown it all away in those three denials. He was a broken man. He must have felt they'd let himself down, the other disciples down, and most of all let Jesus down. 
His Palmeiras up to that point had been on a definite upward trajectory, impressive, strong. But now he was a broken man at the very bottom. But something must have changed. After all, we know Peter. We know Peter's name. He's, uh, he's seen by the Catholic Church as the first bishop of Rome or Pope. He's seen by the Eastern Orthodox Church as the first patriarch of Antioch. Both venerate him as a major saint and founder of the church. He has feast days and a major shrine, as well as many churches dedicated to him. He's called for aid when those who venerate him in such a way have a fever or foot problems or want greater longevity. He's been portrayed in countless paintings, stained glass windows and other works of art. Biblically, the first half of the book of Acts tells us more of Peter's actions after Jesus had returned to heaven. Peter stood up in front of around 120 followers at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon them and spoke with authority and power about God pouring out his spirit upon sons, daughters, young and old. The man who denied Jesus three times to servants was pulled up twice before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish courts of judges, powerful men, and he defied them. He undertook missionary journeys to Caesarea, Joppa, Lydda, Through a vision given to him by God, he was central in taking the good news to Gentiles as well as the Jews. Importantly, in Acts 3, along with John, Peter calls upon the name of Jesus to heal a lame beggar, the first healing written about after the arrival of the Holy Spirit. He was imprisoned by King Herod for his beliefs and teachings. He wrote the books of 1 Peter 2 Peter. Historical writings say that he was crucified for his unshakable belief in Christ and various writers of the time and in the years after, said that he was crucified upside down. So much passion for Christ, so much certainty, faith and willingness to put himself on the line and give it all for Jesus and the spread of the good news. For a broken man weeping bitterly at his verbal betrayal of who he believed was the Messiah, something must have happened. I'd like to read today's conversation with Jesus between Jesus and Peter. As I read it, I want you to consider the journey Peter had been on by the time we reached this conversation. From leaving his home and his business and his family, following Jesus, seeing so many healings, learning so much, listening, experiencing, being the one Jesus shared a vision of the future church with, to then denying Jesus three times, seeing Jesus crucified, thinking it must have all been over before seeing the risen Christ, spending time with him, and then surely wondering where he now stood in all of this. They had this conversation in John 21, verse 15 to 19. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. 
But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. For the rest of this morning, I wanted to look at this passage and its effect on Peter from a few different positions. In fact, this should be easy to remember as we're looking at this passage from the point of Peter's past, Peter's present, and Peter's future, and how Jesus' words change him based on those. As we covered earlier, Peter's past with Jesus up to the point of denial have been pretty cool. The Bible doesn't cover everything, of course, so we don't know everything that went on during those three years of ministry, but we know quite a bit. John 21, 25, as an aside, which um, this is one of those things, you know, when you're um, preparing anything really, you're preparing worship, preparing uh, sermons, preparing work, work and some, suddenly a revelation hits you, and you're like, that's really obvious, and it's hit me. The comedian Frank Skinner calls it an idiotic eureka moment. Like, it's, like, clear, it's obvious to other people, but you never realised it. And it kind of happened to me when I was reading this. And it's just brief, so I want to go into it. John 21, 25 says, so just at the end of that passage, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And that's it from a personal revelation point of view. This simple verse made me go, whoa, of course the Gospels don't, clearly don't cover everything that Jesus and his disciples did in that time. But still, I think I've taken it for granted a lot and I've not really considered what it means. Jesus must have done so much in those three years and travelled so much that we've only heard the tip of the iceberg. And we think, man, these disciples, all these things, the the stories they heard, the healings, many times that, they must have seen so many things and experienced so much with Jesus, far beyond what we've got in writing. And that was just one of those, blow my mind, you know? Sorry, sorry. Anyway, Peter's time with Jesus would have had its hard times, no doubt. I imagine his feet would have ached from walking pretty much every day. He'd have been hungry at times, thirsty, tired. Like I say, he left his work and his home behind. No doubt he'd have been frightened or concerned when dealing with hostile groups of people at times as well. However, he was with his Messiah and had been told about that future church by his Messiah. He was trusted, he was loved. I think because of Peter being so zealous and being there for so many healings and sermons at that time, I think we can safely assume that during that uncertain Easter weekend, Peter's thoughts didn't stray too far from his repeated denials of knowing Jesus after all they've been through. I think it's pretty standard behaviour to dwell on the mistakes you've made and how you've let people down. It's not healthy, but it seems to be something we do. I still think about the lectures that I missed at university. This is 16 years ago. I could have got so much more out of my time there. But, you know, from one of the modules especially, I barely went. I could have got so much more out of it. I remember the phone call I made to my American pen friend from a payphone in my student halls and charged it to my parents on my charge cards. That was like 60 pounds or something, but I still remember it. I'm still horrified by myself. Me too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's these little things, we dwell on them, you know, even a long way in the past. I remember times I've let people down in my work, at home and friends, said I'd do something, never done it. You know, been sick, couldn't go to something. It dwells in my mind. 
Peter will have been thinking about his three denials. When Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, he asks him three times. Now, from researching around, I can gather that there could have been a few different reasons for why Jesus asked him three times. I've got three reasons why Jesus could have asked him three times. Firstly, three is that special number. As Della Sol said, it's the magic number. Saying something three times lends weight to your words and your promise. Films use using things three times as a plot device. A public speaking trick is to say things in threes. The rule of three it's called. A Radio 4 play on Monday afternoon was talking about it. It's a great play. It goes from Tony Blair's education, 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 to General Patterns. Really good way that finished. Uh, General Patterns, <laughs> blood, sweat, and tears. The Israelis, lies, damn lies, statistics. Three. It sort of gathers the people in. We can take three. In the Bible, the number three appears hundreds of times, either for numbers of things, for lists, plans, days, months, and years. Many scholars agree that it's more than just coincidence. There's certainly something powerful about repeating something three times as well. So that's one thing. Three is powerful. It's, it's your word. It's strong. Secondly, and we could delve into ancient Greek for this. I know we love to do that. The first two times Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, Jesus uses the word agape, which is unconditional love. Do you love me? Unconditional love. Do you love me? Agape. Both times, Peter responds with phileo, a love meaning more brotherly friendship love. So both times, just I love you, but you know, as that brotherly friendship way. The third time, Jesus asks, do you love me? In John 21, 17, Jesus asks instead with phileo, love. He moves from the agape to the phileo, and Peter responds with the same. To me, it seems that Jesus is encouraging Peter to move to the agape love, that extra closeness between them, but Peter either misses that or doesn't feel ready for it yet. Either because of what's happened before or just that Peter isn't at that point. However, here it's Jesus who understands where Peter's at and gently moves to that place where Peter's at for that final question. Jesus doesn't want to pull any punches with his plans for Peter or Peter's future. It's that love of Jesus to take Peter from where he is to move him forwards. Thirdly, so we've got three times, different types of love, Jesus moving towards. Thirdly, it certainly feels it's not a coincidence that Jesus asked Peter if he loves him the same number of times that Peter denied him. Jesus is taking what Peter's been through, understanding it, and forgiving him in that. It's as though he's cancelling out the past, allowing Peter to step back towards him and make a fresh start from his past words and decisions. Jesus has given Peter a second chance to step into the promises laid out for him. Jesus did this despite having gone through far more physical agony and anguish himself. Friends, everything we go through, every time we feel we have failed Christ, please take that security that we can return to him, that he knows us, he has patience with us, and he has love for us. He will heal us, and move us on at the pace that we can take. He's no suffering. He knows our hearts and his desire is to heal our hearts. To increase our love and to guide us forward. 
So that's looking at it from Peter's past, from the things he's done and the things he'd said. While dealing with Peter's past, this passage also looks at Peter's present. We've already seen that Peter was not quite ready to step out into full agape love for Jesus, either through what he felt he'd done previously or not quite understanding. Now we can look at the responsibilities Jesus is putting into place at that time for Peter. Peter had said and shown a lot of his belief, belief, belief and faith in Jesus throughout their time together. Now Jesus is commissioning him into that. It was no longer for his future, but was for the present. It was time for Peter to fulfil those words. Each time Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, he followed it up with a similar statement. Firstly, feed my lambs. Secondly, take care of my sheep. Third, feed my sheep. He also makes one more statement in verse 19. Follow me. You may have noticed at this point that I've not mentioned Peter being the rock on which the church is built. This comes from the passage, Matthew 16, 18, which says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Indeed, this is quoted as a reason why Peter's the first pope, the first head of the church after Jesus. However, again, while reading through this and putting everything together, it's interesting to understand old translation subtleties back at play again, and it actually builds in to Peter's plans, and Jesus put them into place. Peter just stated his belief in verse 16 of Matthew on who Christ was, showing a strength of faith. The name Peter meant stone. Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter. Jesus renamed him, you are the rock, you are strong, you are stone. However, the Greek used when referring to Peter in this passage is Petros, which is male. The rock on which Jesus built the church was Petra, female. Suggesting that possibly Jesus was linking the two together, as he did in his teaching, using stories and metaphors. As you are a stone, in name and character, then on my church will be built upon a rock. Putting it together so that Peter could understand. Uses of Petra in the New Testament were to refer to the tomb and to Jesus. Anywhere in the Bible, when rock is used to refer, not just to rock, it's to God, but never to man. For example, Psalm 18.31 and who is a rock except our God? Isaiah 44, 8. Is there any God beside me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Jesus is the rock on which the church is built. But God used Peter greatly in the founding of the church. With Peter becoming one of the sorry, with Peter being the first one to proclaim the gospel at Pentecost. He was one that stood up, proclaimed the gospel. The first to take the good news to the Gentiles. One teaching I've read said that although Peter was not the rock on which the church was built, it is fair to say he was the foundation. Which is interesting. He was there. He was the first one, speaking out, going out. <coughs> Jesus had huge plans for Peter. And at this point, he was laying them out to, them, out to him in clear, bite-sized, achievable nuggets that would shape his present. If you've re ever read any of those self-help books written by self-made millionaires, has anyone ever read one of those fancy self-help books you can get for like 25 quid from Waterstones or something? It's always got like a guy in a nice suit, big shiny teeth. I've made a million, you can too. Shiny hair, shiny suit, shiny teeth. See, I'm using the rule of three there to make it stronger. 
You'll have heard of the theory that the best way to achieve something is to break your target down. While my so, for example, my target may be to become a millionaire. It's not. It could be. That's not something I can achieve straight away in the present. I can't just go and be a millionaire now. It's likely that I've not known where to start and I'd fail and get disheartened before I've even properly tried. These self-help people would suggest that you break that big target down into very smaller targets and those targets into even smaller targets, each level becoming more attainable and working together to reach the final goal. For example, how do, I, how do I become a millionaire? Perhaps at the very first step, it means going to bed earlier and waking up earlier, perhaps, if I worked it down. I can do that. Alongside that, I could apply to a college course in business or whatever. That's more, more achievable. Perhaps I could eat more healthily to aid my attention and my ability to focus. Small steps, but they all sort of start building up together. From there, I can build up on top into looking for new jobs or studying business or opening my own company up, major lifestyle developments and so on. I teach a simpler view of uh, like target setting to my students. If you want to pass the course, get your maths and English, get all your qualifications, what do you need? Okay, you need to attend, be on time and have a decent attitude. Great. How do you make sure you're punctual? Get the right train. Cool. How do, you get, how do you do that? Get up on time. Okay. How do you get up on time? Go to bed earlier. How do you go to bed earlier? Don't play PlayStation until 4am every morning. It's those small steps they can work their way through. And then if they do all those things, they'll suddenly realise they've passed their whole course and each step has been small. See, Peter becomes the foundation of the church. That's a lot of work and a huge commission. If someone said to me, Go and start churches. I'd be like, okay, I don't, what, do I, what do I do? Do I like look for property first? Do I talk to people first? Do I, do I pray? I love, what, what are all these things I do? It's huge. What does Jesus tell him to do? Feed the sheep. Take care of the sheep. Follow Christ. In other words, Peter's being asked to disciple the believers, help them recognise the voice of the shepherd, care for them, aid their development and growth. It's things he can do. It's extremely people-centric. It's not laying out a vast plan for a network of churches, of laying out structures for meetings, expectations of followers and so on. Jesus simply asks Peter to feed and take care of his believers, to help them grow. Peter can do that. He asks Peter to follow him. A, sim a simple request, but it's got huge far-reaching um, vibes. I can't think of the word then, vibes. Huge, far-reaching. Like, ah, oh, implications, thank you. Yeah, these are the perfect words, thank you. Um, it's a simple request, but it's got far-reaching implications. But it's like he's asking Peter all over again. Just like when he first asked him to follow him, when he was calling his 12 disciples. It's almost like a fresh new chapter for Peter. The past is done. We've gone through that. You're forgiven. Here's the task I have in store for you. So now, will you follow me? I love that. God forgives. We're given new life in Christ. That's grace. As Christians, we've all been given a second chance to live 
in that promise of Christ's salvation. 1 John 1 verse 9 states, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Even though we still mess up as believers, we can still find more forgiveness. The Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 includes a prayer for forgiveness and is followed up in verse 14 with the line, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So we've looked at Peter's past and his forgiveness into the present and the plans that Jesus laid out for him, the achievable plans. We're going to look at the importance of the conversation through Peter's future. Jesus himself promised us that following him would be tough, that it would require sacrifice. In Luke 14, Jesus said that whoever doesn't bear their own cross and follow him can't be his disciple. In verse 33 of Luke 14, he says that those who don't renounce everything, giving up physically and emotionally, can't be his disciple. Matthew 6, verse 24, says that no one can serve two masters. Just before he asked Peter to follow, Jesus laid out a stark reminder of what it is like to follow him. A prophecy of Peter's future. In verse 18, he says, But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then, he said, follow me. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. See, rabble-rousers, troublemakers, those preaching out against Roman rule, or indeed Jewish law, at that time were put to death. Not quickly, not painlessly. Crucifixion was horrific. It was long, drawn out, and agonising. If you look on the internet, if you're feeling morbid, at the list of the worst deaths that mankind has ever come up with, Crucifixion is normally in the top ten, and there's some horrible things in those lists. This, or being burnt alive as human candles, as Nero liked to do, or being fed to wild animals, this was the fate that met many early Christians. That was the cost of following Jesus. <coughs> Peter saw what had happened to Jesus those days before. He'd been there when he was arrested, seen him crucified, he'd been flogged, forced to carry his cross through the streets to the hillside. He'd heard Jesus' teachings on what it was to follow him. Even at the start, he'd left his work and his boats and his home to follow him in the first place. he counted the cost, but now he needed to count it again. Peter's future would end with his hands stretched out, crucified, giving up his life for the growth of the church and Christ's teachings, the ultimate sacrifice, but with his eyes on the greater prize, taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of, as it says in Philippians 3.12. He could have chosen to back down, say, thanks, I'm glad we're friends again, but no thanks. You know, to take the old bullseye contestant approach, I've had a lovely time, but I'll take what I've got and I'll go home. But he didn't. As we learn from the first half of Acts, Peter did many things to spread the movement of the gospel and the church throughout the region and to the Gentiles. He moved in the power of the Holy Spirit and he was captured, chased, imprisoned and finally killed for what he believed. Can the band come up please? <coughs> in reading this conversation within the context of Peter's past, his denial of Jesus, 
of his anointing in the Holy Spirit, and of his future. I believe that this conversation was the catalyst for what he did in Acts, along, like I say, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was strengthened, yeah, strengthened and empowered by receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter was a broken man, much like David Miller was at that dark point in his life. Miller's autobiography is entitled Racing Through the Dark, The Fall and Rise of David Miller, and that title. Peter's life as written about in the Bible showed a fall and a rise, with the point in between being highlighted by this conversation. This is where Peter saw forgiveness and restoration in Jesus. His own actions after this fast passing what he did before. Jesus forgave him. Jesus sought to increase Peter's love for him, but understood Peter's current position. Jesus showed him how he wanted Peter to help build the church with achievable targets, and Peter saw following Christ as the best course of action, even with his future crucifixion mapped out already. Romans 3 verse 23 says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But through Jesus' grace we are saved. When we mess up as Christians and apologise wholeheartedly, God will forgive. God will understand where we're at. And he'll help us to move where we need to be in our relationship with him and in the plans he's laid out for us. Okay, can we pray briefly, please?